Well, good evening, everyone. And um, it's, a, it's a Halloween night, so I think we are in for a treat. Um, it is also the 31st of October, and um, one of the many reasons I'm glad we're not leaving the EU is that we're able to have some of our diplomatic colleagues from London who are here tonight who might otherwise have to be in London doing their reporting. Um, some of you will know there is a particular very right-wing Brexit MP called Marc Francois, um, who uh, said, I think it was about three months ago, six months ago, that if Britain did not leave tonight, he would personally explode at 11 o'clock tonight. <laughs> so I have to leave time for us all to watch the, uh, the explosion when it happens. <coughs> but welcome, everyone, to uh, this last in a series of talks here at Wolfson about diplomacy in the 21st century. We've roamed very widely. Um, we had a view from Rwanda on the changing face of African diplomacy. We had a view from Tokyo on the centrality of East Asia to this century's diplomacy. And that includes the centrality of the United States in East Asia. Uh, the case for science diplomacy, as we looked for evidence-based tools to allow us to solve our collective problems, and my own contribution, the case for strategic and rules-based diplomacy over transactional and power-based relationships. For a former British diplomat like me, Nick Burns represents the world we thought we understood. A US which, though it might occasionally swagger took its global responsibilities seriously. The centrality of an Atlantic partnership, which was, of course, military and intelligence rich, but which also stood for values we shared and almost did not need to explain. And a US which went through different presidencies but continued to stand for something bigger than party politics. The question is whether that US, the democratic West it embodied, is now part of history for academics to study and balance evidence about, or whether it's also the future when we emerge from our current storm. Meeting here in Oxford, it's hard to judge whether circumstances in London or in Washington are more extraordinary. Nick himself is a graduate of Boston College and received his master's from Johns Hopkins. He began his diplomatic career in Africa and the Middle East, was director for Soviet then Russian affairs under George H.W. Bush, served on the National Security Council, was spokesman of the Department of State, then ambassador to Greece. He was ambassador to NATO, and then his final job in the State Department was Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, the key job which deals with the government's top priorities of the day. Nick left the Foreign Service in 2008 and joined the Harvard Kennedy School, where he teaches courses in diplomacy, US foreign policy, and international politics. He runs a Twitter feed at R. Nicholas Burns, which is well worth following for its moderate wisdom and dispassionate views on everything except baseball, where his passion for the Boston Red Sox is extreme. Nick. <laughs> So 
Pastor Tim, thank you so much for that very kind introduction and thanks to you and Lady Sarah for the wonderful hospitality here at Wilson College. I've enjoyed the day, it's been a wonderful day after a sleepless night across the Atlantic uh, to meet a lot of the bright students here at Wilson uh, and some of the professors to get a tour of this fantastic, beautiful, wonderful, historic university, certainly one of the great universities of the world. It's inspiring to be here in the United Kingdom in this ecosystem. And I want to thank you for your hospitality. I want to thank my friend Tom Sharp as well because Tom gave me the idea several years ago that I ought to go to his college, which is Wolfson College. So I'm very happy to be here and, and very pleased that the Ambassador of Australia and the Ambassador of Latvia are both here tonight. Really honored. They're far too busy. I know in London, with everything going on in the British government and in the Western uh, Alliance, uh, thank you both for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure for me to be here. I'm going to talk about um, the Democratic West tonight, about the United States of America tonight, about the United Kingdom, at least the observations of a friend uh, in our special relationship of the United Kingdom. It is Halloween. In the United States, Halloween has taken on almost a religious cast. It's a mandatory celebration across the country. I'm kind of surprised that there are as many people, at least students here tonight, I see even in Britain, Halloween has become quite popular, but I'm gratified by it and thank you for being here. Had I been invited to speak to you four years ago this evening, on October 31st, 2015, I would have given a very different speech than the speech that I'm about to inflict upon all of you. Because on that day, four years ago, the West, particularly our two countries, the United States and the United Kingdom, we had our problems and shortcomings, but we were part of a stable, successful, prosperous, and self-confident part of the world. The United Kingdom and the United States four years ago were the bedrock countries of the West. We were the defenders of the faith of the West. And while neither of us was without its challenges, some quite significant domestically, our economies were relatively strong, our political systems relatively stable, our prospects for the future relatively promising, especially compared to that part of the world governed by authoritarian rulers. Our two countries, of course, as everybody here knows, had been operating in tandem since the very beginning of the Second World War, and particularly since Churchill and Roosevelt met and proclaimed the Atlantic Charter in the summer, the late summer of 1941. That was really laying the foundation stone of the world that they saw that they had to create when the war finally ended. Some historians have described the Atlantic Charter as the foundational document, the foundational constitutional document of the West. When I left um, government in 2008, some of my British friends in the FCO, led by Lord Peter Ricketts, actually gave me a framed copy of the Atlantic Charter with Churchill's trenchant revisions penciled in so brilliantly on the side. And it really was a memento for me of the special relationship that did exist and I hope that will always exist between the United Kingdom and the United States. I have that on my office wall at Harvard and I look at it every day, Sir Tim. I think that document and that meeting is also a reminder of what our generation, Sir Tim's generation and my generation, struggled for during the Cold War 
and after. Um, we saw ourselves, I think, in a long line of British and American diplomats who were inheritors of the world that FDR and Churchill had brought forth through the Second World War. And when victory came four years after the Atlantic Charter, our two countries led in constructing a web of interwoven institutions and ideas and proclamations and declarations, the United Nations, NATO, the very beginnings of the European Union with the coal and steel community leading to the Treaty of Rome in 1957, the United Nations Declaration, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the foundational declaration of what we believe in terms of human freedom. And that relationship that we built and the world that we built, the liberal order, helped to contain communism for nearly five decades after the Second World War. And it launched a long reign of relative prosperity in the West and of a great power of peace, mercifully, after the 17 million dead of the First World War and the 60 million dead of the Second World War. And it brought us into a world of laws, of limits, of order, of stability, of human rights, of democracy, and of decency. A world that we could build, especially when countries like Latvia came out of the Warsaw Pact and in the case of Latvia and Lithuania, Estonia, the Soviet Union, and took their rightful place in the European Union and in NATO. That was the world that FDR and Churchill bequeathed us, Jean Monnet and Robert Schumann, labor and conservative in Britain, Republican and Democrat in the United States, Social Democrat and Christian Democrat in the continent. This was a bipartisan effort of left, right, and center politicians over six, seven decades to do what we knew we had to do after the Second World War, overcome it. Overcome it by looking out and committing to each other a long-term and lasting peace. Quite an achievement, the liberal world order. Um, we should wish to be trans transported back to October 31st, 2015. I say that, of course, because we find ourselves this evening in a very different world, one that is both more uncertain and more unstable and deeply unsettling, one in which the United Kingdom and the United States are both suffering what can only be described as twin existential crises. The debate is raging on my side of the Atlantic, and I know it's raging on this side of the Atlantic. From a foreigner's perspective, and forgive me for even intruding on domestic politics six weeks before a British election, the United Kingdom is debating the simplest and yet the most difficult of questions. Who are we as a people? Are we Europeans? Or are we ultimately an island race forever to play the role of an outsider to the main show on the continent. The United States finds itself debating, usually sparked by a flurry of tweets from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue at about seven in the morning. We're debating something that is ineffably sad, how far from grace we have fallen. We're a country divided red-blue, north-south, liberal conservative, urban, rural. And we're now debating the foundational questions that we felt that Roosevelt and Truman and Eisenhower, Democrats and Republicans, had settled forever 
about American isolationism. And that debate is raging. And here are some of the questions in play on my side of the Atlantic. Are we a country that prizes its alliances, such as NATO and our East Asian alliances with Australia and Japan and South Korea and Thailand and the Philippines? Do we understand that those alliances actually are the great power differential between the US and Russia here in Europe and the US and China in the Indo-Pacific? Or will we once again succumb to the temptation of going it alone in the world as the American people have so often in the last 245 years? Are we a country that seeks to uphold the global trade system that lifted a billion people out of poverty in the last 40 years and brought unpre unprecedented prosperity to our own country in the process? Or will we now be determined to dismantle the entire edifice of the multilateral trade system and replace it with one-on-one -on -one trade deals that are more reminiscent of the 1920s and 30s than of the 21st century? Are we a nation that keeps its doors and windows open to immigrants and the 68 million refugees in the world today, the highest number, by the way, of refugees in the world since the summer of 1945? Or will in America those doors now close, especially close to people with dark skin or those of the Muslim faith or those who come from our nearest neighbors in Central America who just want a little bit of, of the peace of the American dream that we have built on our continent? Are we a global power that will continue to support, support democracy when it is in peril as John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan did with such determination and such relish in decades past? I ask that question because our current leader embraces Kim and Xi and Putin and Erdogan and MBS and he never fails to dismiss and castigate publicly Merkel and Trudeau and Macron and for a time Mrs. May. We Americans were, not so long ago, among the proud guarantors of this liberal system. The Democrats in our country would boast that we were the indispensable nation. That's what Bill Clinton and Madeleine Albright said. The Republicans would say, we're the exceptional nation. That's what Ronald Reagan and George H.W. and George W. Bush said. We thought of ourselves, not in an arrogant way, we, we, know, we, we knew we were highly imperfect, but we thought of ourselves as guarantors of stability, at least trying to stabilize the world. But now in the age of Trump, we are in the eyes of many of our closest allies at NATO and around the world, and it pains me to say this, an agent of instability in the world, a revisionist power in the world, tearing down the foundations of the liberal order that Roosevelt and Eisenhower and Nixon and Reagan and Kennedy built up. And in the wake of your historic Brexit vote three and a half years ago here in the United Kingdom, and with the election of Donald Trump in the United States, the world that we knew, the world that we built, feels as if it has been knocked clear off its axis. We've lost something precious and vital. Our balance, our perspective, even perhaps our self-confidence in who we are and what we believe in. In contrast, the authoritarian powers, 
they're brimming with self-confidence about the way that they want to lead through re-education camps in Xinjiang province, through great firewalls, the surveillance states, the occupation and annexation of Crimea, ethnic cleansing in the last two weeks of the Kurdish population of northern Syria to the shame of the United States that left that part of the world two weeks ago, murders of journalists. And just to make things even more challenging, we're living through a moment of very decisive transformational change geopolitically around the West, around the United States and the United Kingdom. The global stars are realigning in fairly dramatic fashion. China is returning to power in the Asia Pacific and in the world. For 18 of the last 20 years, China's been the largest global economy. And after China's subjugation by the West, from the opium wars of the 1840s to the Japanese occupation of the 1930s and 1940s, China is returning to its natural place in the universe of vast economic power and with very bold ambitions under Xi Jinping to dominate in the Indo-Pacific. The long reign of Europe in world affairs on which the sun did not set during the last five centuries appears to be coming to an end. Europe, especially the European Union and NATO, are powerful and they're vibrant and they're very important actors. The European Union economy is a global force, but Europe would be hard pressed to defend itself without the link to Canada and the United States. And Europe's strategic orientation is toward regional, but not truly global power, at least at the present time until the European Union can stabilize itself and evolve. The once mighty Russians are declining on a long downward glide path, heading toward the second division of global power by mid-century, but their wily, agile, and opportunistic leader, Vladimir Putin, the most experienced leader in the world today, 20 years in power. He still has Moscow punching well above its weight, its weight class as his presidency for life perhaps heads into its third decade. By mid-century, our children and grandchildren might see India and Indonesia and Brazil and Nigeria as rising great powers coming into their own at last. And that would be very welcome for the world if that were to happen. And the digital revolution underway, if we think about the impact that artificial intelligence and quantum mathematics, quantum computing, which I know is, an op which is centered here at Wolfson, and biotechnology and machine learning, the impact of those technologies may, in the next 30 years, be greater than the impact of the information age during the last 30 years. These are massive changes in the balance of power, in technology, in prevailing public attitudes, and they compel us to react and to set a new course. And this is where diplomacy can make a difference. This is where diplomacy can help our two countries to recover whenever it's possible to recover, whenever the day comes, and to set a course to move ahead in this century, given these challenges. But at least in my country, I think this is true of most countries, diplomacy cannot work, it cannot succeed, if it is not cemented into clear moral and strategic foundations 
Diplomacy can't be effective if it does not spring from a set of ethical principles and strategic objectives that are harmonious with that nation, with its values and traditions of the nation itself. And one of the reasons that American diplomacy under Tr President Trump, in my judgment, it has not succeeded in any meaningful way on any major issue during the last two and a half years is a lack of such a solid foundation of principles that give us guidance and that allow us to be inspired about the road ahead. Under President Trump, we are a nation adrift. We are unmoored from the democratic principles and the global attitudes, the fact that America would be outward looking that helped to make us, in Trumpian words, great after the Second World War. He operates not on a comprehensive global strategy, but a series of one-on-one one -on -one transactions, each seemingly unrelated to the other. His foreign policy has no discernible strategic theme, no carefully crafted strategy, no unity. And I think most importantly, particularly for young people, and I teach at a university, so I live with young people, no hope of a noble goal ahead. Stability, justice, peace, a better word, absent from the rhetoric, absent from the policies. His foreign policy seems to boil down to the deal in this place or that, where one country wins and someone has to lose in a zero-sum world. There's an irony in all this. The irony is that the United States is actually in pretty good shape. We're at near full employment. Our stock market is booming. Our private sector is healthy. I don't want to sound arrogant, but analytically, we are by a substantial margin still the most significant military, economic, and political power in the world. I think we'll likely be so a decade hence. The rest of the world, however, as I appreciate it, traveling around the world, I just told the ambassador I spent three weeks in his magnificent country, a great ally of the United States, Australia. What I find in Sydney or in Berlin or in Beijing, the rest of the world is looking at us quizzically and warily for the first time in over 80 years, really since the 1930s, when we were truly isolationist, the rest of the world does not know quite what to make of the United States. They worry we're going to succumb again to that isolationist part of our national genetic makeup. One of our greatest presidents, our founding president, George Washington, warned us of entangling, entangling alliances. One of his immediate successors, John Quincy Adams of my home state of Massachusetts, joined him in signaling danger in the world beyond our shores. When Adams said memorably about America on July 4th, 1821, she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. That's how Americans have seen the world until we were brought into the world on December 7th, 1941 and because of the Battle of Britain before. Two centuries later, we live in a very different world. And I think our friends and allies are clinging to the hope that our quite noticeable drift from global leadership, we're not part of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, we're not part of the Iran deal, 
We're slashing immigration. We'll have the lowest level of refugee intake into the United States in 50 years this year, and on and on. The rest of the world is hoping that the United States will return to its 70-year vocation of engagement with the world. That question will not be answered until 12 months' time on November 3rd, 2020, when we have our national election. Existential crisis, I'm afraid to tell you, underway in my country. What Sir Tim has asked me to do, in addition to commenting on the state of affairs in the United States, is also to talk about how we can use diplomacy to create a more stable and a better world. And I'm very proud to be part of the series of lectures that Sir Tim has sponsored this year from people uh, all, from all over the world. Um, I think given the state of world disorder, the task of diplomacy in the United States, and it should be in the United Kingdom and in the NATO alliance and in East Asia, is to rebuild this liberal war world that has been weakened and in part disassembled by the politics of the last three or four years and return to a world of engagement with each other and of inter-economic and military and political integration. This is gonna be extremely difficult because as we try to reconstruct an order in the world, we're facing some major systemic challenges to the peace. There are 195 nation states in the world. Most of us recognize that the most difficult, daunting problems tend to be transnational. Climate change, trafficking of women and children, drug cartels, crime cartels, the threat of pandemics, the whole roster of cyber challenges from cyber espionage to cyber theft in our bank accounts uh, to hacking into an American or German or Dutch or French election over the last couple of years. The thing about transnational problems is that they envelop all of us. It's as if 7.6 billion people are united in having to face one problem and of course, the only way to confront that problem is together, not apart. And we're not together on the issue of climate change in large part because of my country and some others. So this is gonna be a major challenge to put together the coalitions to address these challenges in the future. And that's the job of diplomacy. A second major challenge is how to respond to the China challenges, plural, the China that seeks to supplant the United States as the dominant military power in the Indo-Pacific. The China that seeks to exceed us as a military power by militarizing AI and quantum computing and biotech and leapfrogging over the United States in military technology in the next decade or two. The China that refuses to play by the global trade rules and rips off the intellectual property of Japanese, South Korean, German, British, American, Canadian firms seeking to invest in China itself. The China that believes that its authoritarian system is the wave of the future rather than democracy. But conversely, the China we can't live without. Because if we wanna do something on climate change, it has to be with China. If we wanna stabilize the global economy, it has to be with China. We're not talking about containment of China. We're talking about competing and cooperating simultaneously. In the, in the netherworld, the gray world of diplomacy that a number of us in this room have practiced. And it's a difficult thing to balance competition and cooperation. But we must with China. 
It's not the enemy of the United States, of the United Kingdom, of Australia. It's a country with which we have a complicated but important and vital relationship. That's a second major challenge for the world. And all of us in the world are reacting to the China challenge. The third challenge really didn't dawn on me, frankly, personally, after a lifetime in the American government until quite recently. We're in the nuclear, we're in the wild west when it comes to nuclear weapons for the first time since 1963. The INF Treaty lapsed on August 1st, the Intermediate Forces Nuclear Treaty signed by President Gorbachev and President Reagan in 1987. There are now no limits to intermediate range nuclear competition between the Europeans and Americans and Canadians, NATO, and Russia. New START, the agreement between President Obama and President Putin that limits intercontinental strategic ballistic missiles, will lapse on February 1st, 2021, unless we renew it. And right now, it doesn't look like Moscow and Washington want to renew it. There are no limits on China's nuclear weapons anywhere. There are no limits on Pakistan and Indian weapons or Israeli weapons. And now people like Erdogan and MBS talk openly of acquiring these weapons for themselves. And of course, in the cyber age, we've not figured out how to limit cyber competition, limit attacks on our national assets, on water systems, and other critical infrastructure. So we need to actually rededicate ourselves to a new era of arms control in the nuclear weapons field, in conventional ballistic missiles, I'm thinking of Iran here, and also in terms of cyber weapons. And we haven't lived in such an unsafe, unconstrained environment since the nuclear test ban treaty was signed in the summer of 1963 between the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union. That's where we are in 2000. And 19. These are just three of the critical challenges ahead, and there are many, many more. So I think we've got to redouble the effort to integrate ourselves, to work together diplomatically on all of these problems. It's going to be a very difficult thing to do, but bringing us all together, starting with NATO, starting with our East Asian alliances, is job number one. We have to do something else. I interviewed our former Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, uh, with whom I worked twice in my career, and she's a close friend. I interviewed her at a public forum in Colorado in the Rocky Mountains two years ago. I asked her the following question. What are you worried about? The question I thought I was asking her was, are you worried about Putin or Xi Jinping or Kim Jong-un or the Iranians? She interpreted the question differently. She said, without blinking an eye, we've lost our self-confidence. I said, what do you mean by that? And she wasn't taking a shot at President Trump or President Obama. She was talking about the national mood in the United States. And this is a conservative Republican. We've lost our self-confidence. We've lost our ability to think that what we do is important with the rest of the world, that we should be engaged with the rest of the world. She herself is a passionate uh, supporter of immigration. And she knows what's been happening in our country on that issue. We've lost our self-confidence. I've thought about that conversation often as I've struggled, as many of us have struggled to think about the future of our country. It's almost as if we have to convince ourselves that we were once a great nation, FDR's nation that beat the Japanese 
help Britain and the European allies defeat Hitler. Eisenhower, who created this magnificent interstate highway system that connected our 50 states in the 1950s. Kennedy, who incredibly said, we're gonna put a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth. In 1961, he said it, and we did it by 1969. Martin Luther King, who redeemed us from the original sin of the American Constitution that said that African Americans were three-fifths of a person. He redeemed the entire project of America with the Civil Rights Movement. We had great leaders. We accomplished great things. And it's almost as if we have to convince ourselves that we're capable of that, capable of leading ourselves inside the United States and capable of helping to lead and work with others outside the United States. I don't think the problems of the United States, if I can say this, Sir Tim, are dissimilar in their essentials from the problems of the United Kingdom. We have to believe they can be overcome. We have to believe that both of our countries can return to reason and sanity and stability internally. We have extraordinary strengths in the United Kingdom and in the United States. Economists will say that our two countries, Australia, Japan, Germany, perfectly set up for the knowledge economy, the innovation economy of the 21st century, led by research universities like Wolfson and Oxford and MIT and Stanford and Cambridge and Edinburgh and Harvard. We have some of the finest universities in the world in our two countries. Our banking, private equity, and venture capital firms, financial services, second to none in the world. The city of London and New York. We have the strongest, most disciplined, most deployable militaries in the world. The United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, a great ally of the United States in its part of the world. And unlike China, we're governed by the rule of law and we're governed by the people in free democratic elections. That is an enormous strength for the 21st century. And I didn't want to leave here tonight thoroughly depressing this audience <laughs> with my analysis of where my country is or where your country is because we have many reasons to be hopeful tonight. And let me close with one of your greatest statesmen, Winston Churchill, who was on to this idea about the promise of the United Kingdom and the United States when he visited my university, Harvard, on September 6, 1943. It was a pivotal moment in that war, September 6, 1943, because of course the Soviets had won this extraordinary victory at Stalingrad over the German Sixth Army of von Paulus. And Montgomery and the British Eighth Army had stopped Rommel west of Alexandria in the Egyptian desert uh, at El Alamein. And we, the Brits and Americans, had successfully invaded Sicily and were just about to start the Italian campaign. The war was turning in the Allied direction on September 6, 1943. And forgive me, something else was happening that day and month and year. The long reign of Britain as the single strongest force in the world, the British Empire, was certainly coming to a close on September 6, 1943, and Churchill understood that, and he understood that the American cousins had become the stronger military partner. I say that with no arrogance, 
just as historical fact. And it sets up what Churchill did when he came to Harvard. He received an honorary degree and then he went out to Harvard Yard in the steps of Memorial Church and there were 6,000 young Americans in uniform. Our students left our universities and went into the military, as did yours, during the Second World War. 6,000 young cadets training to go into the Second World War, the Two Front War, into the Pacific with Australia, into the, the battle across the Atlanta, the, the um, English Channel, and with the British. And here's the key line that Churchill said in a very long and a very good speech. He said, the price of greatness is responsibility. To that audience of 6,000 young Americans taking their place in the world, the price of greatness is responsibility. And he went on to say in words that, are that to me are very evocative of our time, he said, one cannot rise to be in many ways the leading community in the civilized world without being involved in its problems, without being convulsed by its agonies, and without being inspired by its causes. In other words, the message to us 76 years later is, Great nations do not abandon the cause globally. They don't pull back from global leadership. They don't dig moats around their country and pull up drawbridges. The United States has to face its responsibilities. And the United States could not have a better, closer friend and ally than the United Kingdom. We can make our world more stable, more prosperous, more just, more peaceful. Please be patient with we Americans as we endure our existential crisis and we pledge to be patient <coughs> with you. Thank you. <laughs>
in Washington, D.C. If you look at the public opinion polls, I'm thinking of two recently, the Pew, P-E-W poll, and the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations poll, which is one of our best in surveying American attitudes about the rest of the world. Both of them, autumn 2019, show <coughs> the highest level of support ever in these polls for the NATO alliance. Because it's been attacked so much by our president, there's been a reaction. High levels of support for trade, which is unusual among Democrats, which have traditionally been anti-trade. High levels of support, but not quite as high as NATO, for immigration and for refugees. I think every American family has an immigrant story. We're all immigrants. And if we begin to close the doors, then we attack the very idea of the country itself. And I've been so encouraged by these polls, but I do think we're talking about discouragement, about the way that America has led in our, in our political classes over the last 20 years. Uh, the failure, our failure in Iraq. I was in the Bush administration, served loyally of course, supported the Iraq war in 2003. I told students that today. I deeply regret that. I think in, with the benefit of hindsight, maybe some of you didn't need the hindsight. Uh, it was a great mistake to take what my friend Kurt Campbell says, a strategic detour into the Middle East for 20 years when the greater issues were containing Putin in Eastern Europe and dealing, working with China, but competing with China in the Indo-Pacific. We're just getting back to those challenges now after these two horrible long-lasting wars that have cost us, Britain, the United States, all of our allies, because both Latvia and Australia have been with us in Afghanistan lives and credibility, uh, and they've been very difficult wars. So I, it's been a, I think there's that mood among our political classes that we haven't succeeded. It takes leadership to convince a political party or a government that we can do better and we can be more effective and we need that leadership and it's my humble judgment, as you can see from my speech, we do not have that leader right now. Thanks, great speech. Uh, but I was expecting you to mention the United Nations at some point and its role in this great span of what's been going on, but you didn't. Is there a reason for that? Forgive me, I thought I did in just talking about the world that was created post-World War II by the Europeans, Americans, Australians and others. Um, I, thought, I thought I mentioned the UN. If I didn't, I should have, it's in the text. It will be in the text that I send to Sir Tim. Let me just say, I think for all of us, and you know, we are the host nation, and so we take that responsibility very seriously in, in our country. Um, I don't think that Roosevelt and Churchill's vision for the United Nations uh, has, um, has played out as they wished. It's simply not the place where we can adjudicate major questions of international stability and war and peace, not when the Security Council is divided three against two. And except for the years, Sir Tim, you and I were both in government, really between the fall of the Soviet Union and then really the fall of Yeltsin, maybe 1991, late 91 to 96 or 97, when Russia was cooperating in China, not yet the China of Xi Jinping didn't want to break the consensus. In those years, we had five countries 
in the Security Council, we had the General Assembly working in relative harmony on big issues. We don't have that. We didn't have it before in the Cold War. We don't have it now. But I, so I don't think we can look to the United Nations to be architects of world orders, major protectors of the peace. That falls to our countries, the democratic countries of the West, the larger version of the West in both Asia and in Europe and North America. But the UN is very effective as our voice and relief agency on refugees. Very effective in humanitarian disaster assistance. UNDP is one of the most effective of all the UN institutions, the UN Development Program. So there are things that the UN does that we should all support. And we would hope that the UN could be a more perfect institution, but clearly is not because the balance <coughs> of power and the competition between the democratic powers and the authoritarian powers blocks the Security Council for being at all effective on these issues, in my judgment. You might have a different view. But <laughs> Thank you, that was a great speech. Uh, my question is for as long as the Trump administration exists, how best do you think US diplomats can reassure the United States allies that the US is committed to the liberal order? I think that's a dipping, frankly, I think it's a difficult argument for my brethren uh, in the foreign, American Foreign Service to make when it comes to NATO. I'm a former ambassador to NATO, I, to NATO. I deeply believe in the alliance. The president has been at best ambivalent. When it comes to the European Union, our great historic partner, I mean, people, Americans forget, we conditioned Marshall aid assistance that the Europeans would create something like this from coal and steel to Treaty of Rome to common market. We, in, we said Europe must unite. President Trump treats Europe, he says this, it's an economic competitor out to harm the United States. His words, not mine. But let me, Sir Tim and I were talking beforehand. This gives me an opportunity to say something about him, to commend him on certain things. He's taken the US relationship with India very seriously and has in the tradition of President Obama and President George W. Bush, continue to build our military strategic relationship with India, which is a great part of our effort to manage the rise of China. I told the ambassador, in my opinion, the ambassador knows better, uh, that our relationship with Australia is rock solid. The relationship between Prime Minister Morrison and President Trump is excellent. I'm very pleased about that. I think the president has also been, I would say even courageous in going after the Chinese on their unfair trade practices. As diplomats, as a diplomat, I might argue with the tactics. My tactical advice would be, if you want to leverage China on trade, don't sanction simultaneously Japan, South Korea, the European Union, Canada, and Mexico. <laughs> because all of them have the same systemic challenge with China that we do, and Australia does too. And so, you know, get the democratic countries together. We're not trying to defeat the Chinese. We're trying to convince the Chinese, stand up to the commitments you made to us in the World Trade Organization. And when the president says rightly that China is no longer a developing country and shouldn't be given such treatment in the WTO, I, I, I just have to say as an opponent, he's done some good things in office. And those are three 
of the things that I wanted to say to provide some balance to my speech. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you for speaking so frankly to a, an audience here in Britain which is having its own mini existential crisis. The, the question I have for you is that you very cleverly went back to the Second World War to see the roots of multilateral institution building in the years that followed, the Cold War years and beyond. My hunch is that we can't go back. And therefore, my question to you is, do you really think that an institution like NATO, which is very much formed as a Cold War institution, has a future? Or should we, in the prestige universities you've been thinking about, and the policy think tanks, be thinking about completely new forms of multilateral cooperation? What a great question. Are you a professor here? I was going to say, <laughs> you and I could, could together design and teach a course on that one Let's issue at Wolfson or at Harvard. Let's do it. Um, I would say two things, and this is a longer conversation that I hope we can have. I think we have to go back for some inspiration right now. We're in crisis, both of us. And I don't see Europe doing great either in terms of how the EU is evolving. It's not evolving self-confidently. I'm reading a book by Michael Fullylove, who's a countryman of the ambassador. He's an Australian director of the Lowy Institute in Sydney. And it's about the world that these men and women made uh, between the, the middle of the Second World War and, say, 1950. Most of, all of them have been alive during the First World War. Churchill had been a minister, first Lord of the Admiralty, right? Or first Sea Lord, first Lord of the Admiralty. Roosevelt had been Assistant Secretary of the Navy. They saw what went wrong at Versailles. They saw what went wrong in the 20s and 30s with American isolationism and European appeasement. They were determined not to repeat those mistakes. So I think we can go back to that, actually, for some inspiration that you can actually have historical reference points that propel us forward, point one. But point two, I agree with you. This is a very different world. In 2020, is just ahead than 1945. So clearly we have to do two things, broadly speaking. We have to strengthen the democratic West. There is a battle, a competition, between the authoritarian powers and the democratic powers. And right now, we don't have a natural leadership united, at least from Washington, D.C., and we need that desperately. If Reagan were alive today, he'd be in the middle of this rhetorical battle with Xi Jinping about whose system provides more for human beings, for happiness, for welfare, for freedom. We've got to do that. And we have to compete with China and hold our position. I, I would say the United States, Australia, Japan, India. And we have to keep NATO together. And my final point would be NATO is terribly relevant for a world in which Vladimir Putin threatens at age 65 to stay in power well beyond his term limit of 2024. When he has annexed Crimea, occupied the Donbass, invaded Georgia, he's carved up Moldova, threatening a corporate hostile takeover of Belarus, threatening the Baltic states, the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, where we have now deployed NATO forces 
to say this is our red line. I think of NATO and the EU as twin institutions designed to guarantee in the future a Europe that is in the words of the Thatcher, Bush, Mitterrand, Cole generation, whole, free, and at peace. And if you take NATO out of the equation, I don't think Europe can be any of those things. So what a great course we could have together. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Thank you very much for the lecture, um, Mr. Burns. Uh, you talk about how with President Trump's uh, tweet-led policy mm. and also our current existential crisis, the democratic West is perhaps losing its reputation and importance in the world. Do you think it's the direction both our countries are going in or the uncertainty which is more damaging to our reputations on the world stage? To be honest, I think it's a, it's a question that's kind of open and that we, need to, we are thinking about and need to continue to think about. There are a lot of people in my country who say, look, President Obama began to pull us back. Remember the Syria red line? When he didn't honor it twice when Assad crossed it with the use of chemical weapons. Uh, a lot of people think that America is being pulled back inward. The public opinion polls do not uh, back that up. And I told the Wolfson students with whom I, the Oxford students with whom I met today, I see Donald Trump as a unique figure in our politics. I believe personally that any possible Republican or Democratic successor of the 20 or 30 or so men and women who might succeed him in 2020 or 2024, none of them, none of them will distance themselves from NATO, describe the EU as a competitor, be so weak in the face of Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, weak, because that's what he's been. And it's interesting to look at the Republican Party in the Senate. I spend a lot of time on Capitol Hill. I testify. The Republicans are with the president on his domestic agenda, no question. But on the foreign policy agenda, if you read our press two and three weeks ago, it was the Republicans led by the majority leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who excoriated the president on our abandonment of the Syrian Kurds, number one. Number two, they've opposed him on his weakness towards NATO, and they've continually passed these resolutions to support NATO. Last year at the Munich Security Conference, we had the greatest number of members of Congress ever, and they came, both parties, to say, we're with Europe. We're not gonna leave NATO. And um, there's particular misgivings about the fact that he hasn't stood up to Putin on Putin's use of cyber weapons to destabilize our electoral process, buying up you know, millions of uh, dollars worth of ads on Facebook to inject cancerous fake news into the American bloodstream. There's unhappiness with the president in the Republican Party on foreign policy. They will not say that, but just look at their votes and look at the resolutions that they pass. That gives me hope that Donald Trump is unique, that he will not be repeated. You're not gonna see an American president like this again, I hope, I'm right. One last question. I think the lady up here at the top of the stairs may have to be it. So, both in your lecture and the questions, you talked about Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. My question is about this 
kind of growing third sector within American uh, politics, especially among my generation coming from the US, um, there are a lot of people who they don't see as much of a difference between, for example, Trump and Obama in actual action. So we talked about tactics and talk and they're very different. Um, but at the end of the day, the, so we were talking, you mentioned how um, Trump is a supporter of MBS or raises these autocrats. But then at the end of the day, the US was still allies with Saudi Arabia under Obama. Um, and I'm a proud Democrat, but I do notice this growing disillusionment with American politics in the sense that at the end of the day, the actions are the same, but maybe the rhetoric is different. So um, if you could just speak to that as someone who really cares about politics, but is uh, maybe dissatisfied or unhappy with this trend that's just continued over time with different presidents. Thank you very much. It's a very good question. I, I, I discuss this a lot with my students, some of whom agree with you, my students at Harvard. I would, uh, I would disagree that President Trump and President Obama are similar in what they've actually done in the world. I just think, look at climate change, look at the Iran nuclear deal, look at President Obama's commitment to NATO and the EU. I think there are major differences. Um, point one. Point two, however, there is a raging debate in the Democratic Party among the, is it 221 or 21 people running for president? I've lost count, <laughs> but there are a lot of them. And there are a lot, we don't have a stage big enough for all of them. There's a big debate and clearly at least I sense, and I should be transparent with you, I'm uh, supporting and advising Joe Biden. And I hope he wins. He's one of those centrists that I think, you know, probably has the best chance of winning uh, the election against Donald Trump, I think he would defeat Donald Trump in a one-on-one -on -one race. He'd also be the most experienced person. This is my 10 seconds to advertise for <laughs> Vice President Biden. He clearly is the most experienced person to dig us out of the thousand foot hole that we've dug for ourselves as a country, uh, his 46 years in Washington. But you're right in a sense that the, the energy in the party is clearly on the left. Who are the major funders, run raisers? Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and 37-year-old Mayor, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who's a really impressive guy. I have great admiration for Senator Warren, who's very strong intellectually. I think she's a very honest person. But this is a debate on the left of the party with uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. I don't think they can be elected by the American people in a general election. And my fear is if the Democrats nominate a person from the extreme left, that opens the door to a Trump victory which I clearly do not want in 2020. But I do think you're right that millennials in our country and people in other demographics are looking for a bigger government, a government that will make dramatic changes to the way we do healthcare, aid to poor people in our country, reduce the income inequality, the gross income inequality in our regressive tax rate system. You're right. That's where a lot of the energy and money is. And we're just a couple of months away from knowing the answer is it going to be the left or the center that wins that democratic debate, at least in this particular cycle? Uh, Sir Tim, if I could do one thing in closing, I fear that I've depressed everyone uh, with the tour d'horizon of the United Kingdom, the United States. One thing I do with my, I teach a course uh, which Josh uh, Gerstein uh, took. He's a student here at Oxford, graduate of Harvard College. He took it two years ago. It's called Great Powers. And we look at global politics and powers, we try to track who is who is uh, waxing and who's waning, how can we compete together, where may the conflicts come, and it's basically a, a course 
about conflict and about danger. And so I decided a couple of years ago that that just wasn't good enough because those of us in government, of course, we must defend when we must, but we also have to advance human progress. So I poll my students now at the end of every semester and I usually have 70 or 80 students, usually from 15 or 20 different countries, and I say to them, what are you hopeful about? And I want to give you the results of May's poll. And these are, these are 70 students from, from 16 countries, all millennials from all over the world. They're hopeful about poverty alleviation. The world has lifted more people out of poverty in the last 30 years than any other time in human history. China, India, Sub-Saharan Africa, Brazil. They're, they're, they're very proud of that. They think they can move forward on that. Global public health. We haven't eradicated a single disease since smallpox. We're two to three years away from eradicating polio. It only exists right now in Syria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and I think Nigeria. Bill Gates thinks that a malaria vaccine can be invented and fielded so that within, say, 15 or 20 years, um, the 500,000 children who die in Africa every year beneath the age of five of malaria can be saved. And think of the progress on HIV. It's no longer, for most people, a mortal illness. It's a chronic illness because of the presence of antiretroviral drugs. So poverty alleviation, global public health, the rise of women, which my students, male and female, are passionate about, and our daughters are passionate about, and it's happening in countries, many of the countries here, certainly in the UK, and I hope will continue in the United States. And fourth, for my students, number four this year was the promise of technology. Some people see the double edge of technology, the danger, say, of gene editing. Bill Gates wrote a foreign affairs piece on that issue. Beware the ethical dimensions of uh, re-engineering people's genes. But younger people, and, and it's good, they're optimistic, they can see the promise of technology, and um, I think it's good to end on hope that despite the considerable challenges we face, we can also be hopeful about the human condition. Thank you. So let me make a final vote of thanks. Um, I think what Nick has done tonight is what the very best diplomats are able to do, which is to have a very, very clear understanding of the present, this week, next week, but to set it in the context of a very clear understanding of long-term trends. And I think if you get too sucked into the present, you lose your bearings. If you think too much about the future, you lose your ability to achieve anything today. So I think he's described that very well. And the second thing, though there is a note of nostalgia in what he's been describing, I do think that one somehow needs to go back to recapture the hope about the future. And if I look at the architecture of Wolfson College, that takes us right back to a period in at least British history in the late 60s when we were confident about the future, and sometimes you have to step back a little bit to be able to think clearly and confidently and optimistically about the future. So thank you for allowing us to step back a little bit in order to step forward.
Thank you very much.